So we're going to read from Numbers chapter 24 and begin reading at verse 15. And remember as we read, this is the word of God and so we can trust it completely. Then he, that's Balaam, uttered his oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheph. Adam will be conquered. Ser, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. Well, as I said, we're going to take some time this morning to look at a couple of chapters from the book of Numbers. <clears throat> a few months ago, we had our Relate Weekend away with the young people from church, and we took some time to look at the book of Numbers, focusing particularly that weekend on the ironic blessing from Numbers chapter 6. But this story of Balaam and a man called Balak and the people of Israel was one of the other passages that we looked at together. And Nigel had asked me to think about preaching this sometime in church, so I guess this morning we'll give you a little bit of a flavor as to what it is that we do and relate with the young people. Um, But actually, it's a wonderful story in its own right, and it has much to teach us as a church family about what it means to be God's people. So to help us, let me say a little bit about the context in which these events take place. We don't often look at the book of Numbers in church. It might be somewhat unfamiliar to you. But it tells the story of God's people wandering in the wilderness between their exodus from the Egypt and their eventual arrival in the promised land. It was a journey that should have taken about three to four weeks, but because of the people's grumbling and sin, it ends up taking them 40 years. The journey, or the book, chronicles the lives of two generations. The first generation of God's people fail to live faithfully, and almost all of them die in the wilderness. And the second generation are more faithful than the first, and they're the ones who eventually enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Numbers chapter 22 to 25, the chapters we're looking at this morning, speak of the last days of that first unfaithful generation. So from Numbers chapter 26 onwards, It speaks of a new generation and a new beginning. So what I want us to do this morning together is to see what God might have to teach us from these ancient words, these ancient stories. And I want us to look at it in stages. It's a little bit different from normal in that I want to read a little bit of the Bible, then talk a bit about it, then read some more, then talk about it again. So actually, it will be really, really helpful for me and for you to have a Bible open as we're doing that. Even if you don't normally have a Bible open in Hill Street during the sermon, it'll be really helpful for you to have one open this morning and follow along as we look at these stories together. There are two things that I want us to see in particular in these chapters, two enemies that we must be aware of. We must be aware of the enemy from without and aware of the enemy from within. So those are the two things that we're going to notice this morning as we look at these chapters. So 
Please do have Numbers chapter 22 open in front of you. You'll see from verse 1 of Numbers chapter 22 that the people are right there. They're on the precipice of the promised land. Jericho is in their sight. In chapter 21, they have defeated two kings called Sion and Og. And they're about to face another enemy, this time a man called Balak. And Balak is absolutely terrified at the sight of these two million odd people who are right on his doorstep. So Numbers chapter 22, we're going to read the first 20 verses here. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor near the river in his native land. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country, for I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. And they came to Balaam. They told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princes stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt, cover the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's princes, go back to your own country for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princes returned to Balak and said, Balaam has refused to come with us. Then Balak sent other princes, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, this is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered them, even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now stay here tonight as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. That night, God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Balaam's weird, right? Is he a goodie or is he a baddie? He seems to have a relationship with God. He seems to be able to channel the power of the Lord and use it for cursing and blessing. It's difficult to work him out in some ways. At first sight, he looks as though he is obedient and submissive to God. But don't be fooled. Because the Bible absolutely slams Balaam every single time that it talks about him. He is a power-hungry, greedy man. Verse 13 sounds good. He looks impressive and obedient there, but it's all a bit of a bluff. 
It seems as though he's just thinking about how he can get some more money out of this whole arrangement. It seems as though he's driving a hard bargain. He's a bit like a stingy football chairman on transfer deadline day, just trying to squeeze every last drop of money out of Balak and his advisors. See, Balaam is part prophet, part politician. He is someone who has made his money from words. He knew how to wangle money out of people. He knew the art of the deal, as it were. And if you look really closely at verses 12 and 13, you'll see just how sneaky and deceptive Balaam is. In verse 12, God clearly says that Balaam is not to go with the Moabite officials or to curse his people because they are blessed. But then in verse 13, when giving his answer to the officials, Balaam makes no mention of the fact that God has said his people were blessed, nor was there any indication in his answer that he was reluctant to do their bidding. In this instance, it's what he doesn't say as much as what he says that belies his true desires. You see, given half a chance, Balaam will try and make this deal happen. He was determined to find a way around God's word here. It's interesting, in the New Testament, Balaam is consistently viewed with suspicion. He is depicted as a greedy man in love with money. And so in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15, Peter is criticizing false teachers and he compares them to Balaam. This is what he says. He says, they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. Peter slams him. And then in Jude verse 11, in a passage that's written about the sin and doom of ungodly people, we read this. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed off for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed as in Korah's rebellion. Balaam is slammed in the rest of the Bible. He's not viewed positively at all. You see, this whole encounter is meant to teach us that we're meant to see Balaam is using God's character as a means for his own end. He loves money. He is seduced by its power. He is a greedy man who just wants more of it. And Balak keeps offering him more money in the knowledge that Balaam will give in eventually. All it takes is some more numerous and more distinguished officials, verse 15. And Balaam again insists that he can't come with the men in verse 18. But really here, he's just acting like a politician who knows how to play the God card as and when he needs to. And verse 19 gives us the real insight into his heart. If he really meant the words of verse 18, then he would have no reason to invite the princes to stay or to invite further of, inquire further of the Lord in verse 19. He's trying to find a way around God's word. He has had the prospect of gold and riches dangled in front of him. And now that he has that scent, nothing will stop him from trying to get it. And so in verse 20, God says, fine, go with him. He's effectively saying, fine, Balaam, do what you want. Because God is going to teach greedy Balaam a lesson. So we pick up the reading, verse 21. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, key character, and went with the princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, 
and his two servants were with him. So we read that and think, hang on a minute, God, you just told him to go in verse 20. How could you be angry for going with him? Isn't he just doing what you told him to do? Well, no, because God has told him not to go. But Balaam kept coming back to God with a deceitful heart that really wanted to go, and so God is allowing him to go with Balak's officials here in order to teach him a lesson. It's not that God has changed his mind. It's not that God has become schizophrenic somewhere between verse 20 and verse 22. Rather, it's that God has seen the deception in Balaam's heart, and now he is set to expose it. So verse 23 to verse 31 there. This is the bit of the talking donkey. So if you're a parent of one of the kids who are at the front, so we've got to listen. Verse 23, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat her again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn either to the left or to the right. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam and he was angry and beat her with his staff. Here it comes. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she said to Balaam, what have I done to make you beat me these three times? It's a polite donkey. Balaam answered the donkey, you have made a fool of me. If I, have a sword, if I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. So Balaam here enters into an argument with his own donkey and he loses. He is an enemy of God. He is incredibly self-centered, deceptive, and greedy. He is concerned only to promote his own ambitions and desires. He is an enemy of God who has opposed God's people. And what does God do? God makes a donkey of him. That's what God does to those who oppose him. The biblical principle established here is clear. God will not be mocked. He is always victorious in the end. He always triumphs over his enemies. And one day, even his most staunch critics and fiercest opponents will bow the knee to him. They will either bow to him in repentance as their Lord and Savior, or they will cower before him in terror as their judge. Balaam opposes God, and God teaches him a lesson. Balaam then has this conversation with the angel of the Lord in verses 32 to 35, and it becomes clear that from this point onwards, he will only speak exactly what God tells him to. And so as the story unfolds, we don't have time to read it all now. We see that Balaam turns up, and Balak is delighted that he has come. He thinks, great, my multi-million pound bid has worked. Balaam is my weapon of mass destruction. He is going to curse my enemies and these two million people will be gone from my doorstep. And so the next slide shows them up on a mountaintop trying to curse God's people. They overlook the outskirts of the Israelite camp. Balaam opens his mouth to curse the people, but as he does so, only blessing comes out. And Balak is going, come on, curse them, curse them, curse them, curse them. 
And Balaam speaks and only God's blessing comes out. And then Balak's like, no, shut up. That's not what I paid you for. I paid you to curse them and now you're blessing them. Stop. And so they try and move around to a different place. Numbers 23 verse 13 tells us that. Balak hopes that if Balaam can only see a portion of the people, then he'll be able to curse them. But of course, that doesn't work either. And the same pattern continues. Every time Balaam comes to open his mouth and curse the people, only blessing comes out. And it all culminates in chapter 24, verses 15 to 19, that prophecy that we read earlier on. It says, Then he spoke his message, the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Ser, his enemy, will be conquered, but Israel will go strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. So here's Balaam, right? God's enemy, speaking blessing over God's people at God's command. And not only that, now he prophetically speaks of a star that will come out of Jacob, a ruler who will emerge from God's people, who will rise up and bring an end to all of God's enemies. God humiliates his enemies. He foils their plans to oppose him, and he even uses them here to prophetically speak about the coming of a messianic king. These are incredible chapters. And even here, in the midst of all this toing and froing between Balaam and Balak, there is an announcement of the future hope that is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the star that will rise out of Jacob. He is the scepter that will rise out of Israel. He is the ruler that will come out of Jacob. Ultimately, he is the messianic king who will crush our enemies of sin, death, hell, and the devil. His victory will be our victory, even though we never lift so much as a finger to accomplish it ourselves. And all the while, all while this is going on up on the mountaintop, where is the nation of Israel? Well, they are on the plain below. They have no idea about anything that is going on up the mountain. And so all of this plotting and scheming to curse and destroy God's people is going on, and they know nothing about it. But they have no reason to fear. Because even when God's enemies are plotting and scheming behind their back, God has got their back. He is orchestrating things in such a way that he is caring for his people. He is protecting them from their enemies and they haven't got a clue about it. How amazing does that make our God? So what is the application for us today as New Testament believers? Well, the New Testament is very clear. For us, there is an enemy and he is a powerful enemy. We must be clear about that. Satan is a liar, a deceiver, a murderer, a usurper, an accuser, a stealer of joy. And his desire is to destroy and curse God's people. He wants to ruin your witness and devour your soul. Your enemy is real. And in the Christian life and in gospel ministry, you will be in line for attack. The enemy wants you to feel guilty feel stressed, useless, worthless, exhausted, without hope. But I want you to know this morning that our enemy is a defeated enemy. The whole point of the gospel is that he has been 
defeated. Our enemy is a loser. He is a defeated donkey of an enemy. And you need to know that in the Christian life, there are times when God is at work in protecting you from our enemy and you don't even know about it. This promised messianic king is our king. He is on our side. Jesus is alive and well, and he has got you. And we need to remember that. Whenever I was wee, um, my granny taught me the song, Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's a line in it that says, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. You know something? You should write that in permanent marker on your mirror when you wake up in the morning. Remind yourself that we are weak, but Jesus is strong. He is the warrior king who has triumphed over his enemies, and he has absolutely got us safe and secure in his hands. He will not allow us to be devoured by our enemy. And so our job is to stay close to the warrior king. We don't need to win the battle. Jesus has already won it for us. We need to stay close to the king. So that's the first point, the enemy from without. What about the enemy from within? The story then returns to the plain of the Moabites in Numbers chapter 25. And it is gut-wrenchingly painful to see what is going on there. So remember, God is protecting his people up in the hills in the most awesome way. And down on the plains below, his people are messing it up spectacularly. So Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. Let's read that. When Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. They invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. And the Lord's anger burned against them. Can you believe it? God has been protecting them, saving them from the curse of their enemies. And what are his people doing? They are getting into bed with their enemies, literally. They are worshiping the false gods of their enemies. They are giving themselves over to the evil desires of their hearts. And their sexual immorality that precedes the idolatry here is a graphic picture of the underlying spiritual reality. Israel has abandoned her true husband, the Lord God and is taken up with a foreign lover in Baal. And the tragic irony of this whole sorry scene is meant to make us think about another enemy, perhaps the enemy that we should be most afraid of in the Christian life, the enemy within. Charles Spurgeon once said, beware of no man more than of yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. We need to know this morning that the biggest threat to God's work in our lives, both corporately as a congregation and as individuals, doesn't come to us from outside, but from within. The greatest threat to you is you. The greatest threat to God's work in this place is us. So often we're so quick to play the blame game. We're blind to our own sin and idolatry. And yet time and time again, the Bible reminds us that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We are our own 
biggest threat. And the sooner we realize that, the better chance we have of making progress in the Christian life and of being effective in the cause of the gospel. Let's look at what happens in the rest of the chapter. Verse four, the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must be put to death, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the high priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. For he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. This is gut-wrenchingly powerful stuff. We're meant to look at this and see the zeal that this man Phineas has for the honor and glory of God's name. Look carefully at the text. Look at verses six and seven. What is Phineas doing when the man and women come into the tent? He, along with the others, is weeping. And when the man and the woman who are sinning blatantly in defiance of God come in front of the tent, he is so consumed with zeal and passion for the glory of God that he is moved to do something about it. So please don't read this and think that he's some crazy religious fanatic who just wants to go on a killing spree. That's not what it's saying. He is weeping here over the sins of his people. He is broken by it. The tears are rolling down his face as he casts the spear into the man and the woman. He is zealous for the glory of God's name. It's an incredibly sad and tragic story. It's meant to move us. It's meant to help us feel the weight of sin. It's meant to help us see again just how deep our problem really is. You know something? I'm not sure that I can think of many more moving stories in the Old Testament than this one. But I can think of one in the New Testament. Because there we see a man more zealous for the glory of God, more passionate for the name and honor of God than anyone else who has ever lived. And when he enters the city of Jerusalem and he sees God's people living as if God wasn't king, he too weeps. And in Luke chapter 19, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he is broken by the lostness of the people and the tears run down the face of the Lord Jesus. And yet... And this is both tragic and glorious, right? Where does the spear go when Jesus enters into Jerusalem? Who takes it? It's not driven into the people of Jerusalem. It's driven into the very side of Jesus himself. He is the one who is broken by the sins of the people, but he is the one who takes the sharp end of God's wrath and judgment upon himself. And because of him, his perfect sacrifice in our place The plague that should have fallen upon us is stopped at him. He takes what we deserve. 
so that we can be forgiven and enabled to enter into the presence of God. This is the more moving story of the gospel. That in Jesus Christ, we have one who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We're people who defile ourselves with sexual immorality, with greed, with selfishness, with idolatry, with all sorts of messed up and disordered desires. What are we to do with them? We are to run to Jesus with them, knowing that he has taken the spear for them, knowing that he has taken all of our mess and shame and guilt into himself, and he has paid for it once and for all. The question then comes, and we're almost done. How do we respond to what Jesus has done for us? Turn with me briefly to a passage in the New Testament, to Colossians chapter three. If you understand the gospel, if you understand that Jesus has died to save you from the enemy within, then this is what we're to do. Colossians chapter three, verse five. And I want you to have the image in your head of us, you and I, picking up our spears as we do this. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. You see, when you understand that Jesus is Savior and that sin is your enemy, then your response can't just be to say, well, that's nice. In response, we need to be those who are committed to putting sin to death in our lives. We must not treat sin in our lives lightly. We need to be ruthless with it. We need to take up our spears and with tears rolling down our faces, put sin to death in our hearts and lives. If we're gonna make it to the promised land of the new creation, then we need to be those who are committed to putting sin to death. Listen, don't misunderstand me. If you're trusting in Jesus, then you are saved. You are forgiven. You have nothing left to pay Full atonement has been made. But listen as well, because of that, you must fight sin. So let's be people who say, Lord Jesus, for your honor and for your glory, even with tears in our eyes, please help us to take aim at the sin in our hearts. Help us to put it to death. And so you know the stuff in your life, don't you? At least you know some of it. You know your own battle with the enemy within. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've gotten weary in the battle. Maybe there is sin in your life that you're tolerating. Maybe you're not even that bothered by it anymore. Then please, please let this be a wake-up call to you. Let's look to Jesus again in the confidence that he is king, that he is our savior. And as we see him in his glory, let's resolve to go to war with our sin. Let's keep at it. Keep picking up our spears. Keep looking to King Jesus. Don't give up fighting because he will give you the power. You might think that there's stuff in your life that you will never get victory over. You will. You will. 
might take you years and years and years. It might not even happen until you die. But keep fighting. Keep taking up your spear. And every time you blow it, every time sin entices you away, and keep looking back to Jesus, remembering that he wept for you, he took the spear in his side for you. He died for you so that you can go to war with the indwelling sin in your heart. When sin lurks and looms large, keep picking up your spear. Keep putting it to death. This is the Christian life. So let's resolve to keep going by God's grace for the glory of this King Jesus. Let's pray together. As we pray this morning, I just want us to pause for a few moments to reflect upon the sin in our own hearts and lives, to have space to confess it just now before the Lord. Father, we want to thank you this morning for our Savior who wept tears over the sins of this world, over our sin, but then went to the cross and took the spear and his side for us. Lord, it should have been us. But we praise you this morning for King Jesus. He is glorious, he is beautiful, he is magnificent in every way. So Lord, we pray this morning for the grace that we need to keep picking up our spears and going to war with the sin that still lurks in our hearts. Help us to hate the enemy within and to fight it in the power that Jesus alone can give. Amen.